Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is, it's three months to the day since I last preached. Uh, I just came off of two months of uh, paternity leave, and I wanted to share a couple of pictures because that's my prerogative. As the... uh, if, first, if you haven't already met Daniel, here he is. This was right before he enjoyed his first dip in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, we were out in California for my doctoral hooding ceremony at Fuller Seminary, and, and I want to share a second picture. Uh, this, is my, this is my parents at 110 North Oakland Ave in Pasadena, California. It's now a building that serves as administrative offices uh, on Fuller's campus. But 50 years ago, in 1969, it was my parents' home when my dad was at Fuller doing his master's. Um, it was my eldest brother Clem's first home in 1970 when he was born, and here are my parents uh, a half century later. Uh, some of you may know that, that Fuller is moving its campus in the coming years, so it was really a, a photo opportunity I definitely didn't want to miss. Um, so we can take that down now. In, in being out for a couple of months, I've, I've missed out on preaching in the last couple of sermon series, Power and Possibility, which was our series on the Holy Spirit, and then most recently, The Theology of Place. Uh, so I have a lot to say. <laughs> but also in being out for the last couple of months, I really haven't been exercising my, uh, my, my preaching muscles. Essentially, my only mission for two months was to keep this kid alive. And so it's, uh, it's been a bit of an effort to get my mind back in gear. It feels a little bit like trying to turn the Titanic around. It takes a little time sometimes, if any Amy Grant fans caught that. I'm just going to enjoy that moment. <laughs> like I said, I, I felt like I've had much to say, and I may still say too much today, but I was asking God to give me some focus, and uh, the occasion of July 4th provided that. Uh, today's message will be a combo addition to the last two series on the theology of place and the power and possibility of the spirit-filled life. Uh, today's message is, call, is the call of the kingdom. The call of the kingdom. And our passage for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, so I want to ask you as you're able to stand and reverence the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. James Cone was a black theologian and scholar who passed away last year. One of the books he wrote was God of the Oppressed. God of the Oppressed. It's a book that named and challenged much of uh, the unconscious privilege that was implicit in my own faith narratives. I didn't even know, know it. And if you haven't read it, I would recommend it. Uh, I meant to bring my copy so that anyone could borrow it, but I forgot, so sorry. But in, in, in God of the Oppressed, Cohn writes this. 
One's social and historical context decides not only the questions we address to God, but also the mode or form of the answers to the questions. Okay, one's social and historical context decides not only the questions we address to God, but also the mode or form of the answers to the questions. In other words, who we are and what has made us who we are shapes our perspective and our lenses. It shapes the questions we ask, and it shapes what we think we hear in return. And so I want to start by briefly telling you a little bit about where I'm coming from. Not just for the folks who, who have come in the last few months who may not know who I am, and not just for the folks who've forgotten. I share this because all of it shapes in some way what I will say afterward. I was born an American citizen, but I've only lived in this country for the last third of my life. I was born in Hong Kong, then a British colony, and I grew up there going to English schools with teachers from England and a Southern Baptist church with pastors from the South. As a teenager, I was baptized there. Then I spent eight years in and around London, England. During my time in college, I recommitted myself to Jesus, or maybe more accurately, I decided to follow Jesus for myself rather than because it was what was expected or inherited. Now, growing up outside the U.S. means that I didn't learn about American history in class. That all came from my own curiosity, reading books, both fiction and nonfiction, perusing encyclopedias because I'm a proud nerd, and whatever pop culture I came across, audio clips of Martin Luther King Jr., movies like Glory. I didn't grow up saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and to be honest, it still feels weird to me as a Christian. I moved to live for the very first time in the U.S. when I was 23, from gray, overcast London to sunny Southern California, where I went to Fuller Seminary in Pasadena for three years. It was there that I got to really know the God of justice, the God who cares about every part of a person, including their social condition. But my culture shock on crossing the pond also included the very unique ways Americans think about race, guns, and religion. And the fact that being a Christian meant that I was in the majority for the very first time in my life here in America. Ten years ago, I moved to D.C. to pursue an internship in social justice advocacy. And my eyes were open to, even more so, the desperate needs in our country, in our city, and in our world, and God's challenge to his people in the face of those needs. My plan, my plan was to be here for one year and then head back to the beaches, But God's plans looked a little different. And so my last 10 years have included being part of a team that planted a church in in Columbia Heights called the District Church in 2010. Being part of the team that planted the Eastside Parish here at Minor Elementary in 2013. And then sticking around when the Eastside Parish became Christ City Church in 2017. My last 10 years have included pastoring as a single 20-something getting married to my wife Carolyn five years ago this week, and walking through the uncertain and tortuous journey of infertility for several years before we welcomed our son Daniel into our lives earlier this year. My last 10 years have included wrestling with my identity as an Asian American and as a Chinese American in a city that is less than 5% Asian and less than 2% Chinese. With my identity as a gentrifier, 
and a recent homeowner in a city where gentrification is pricing out and pushing out many working class black families and native Washingtonians. And with my identity as a pastor and a recent church planter in a city where race, economics, and opportunity define us and divide us as much as neighborhoods and boundary lines do. What do I do with all of that? What would God have me do? One social and historical context decides not only the questions we address to God, but also the mode or form of the answers to the questions. That's true for us as individuals, and so we need to know our own social and historical context. We need to do the deep work into ourselves and our stories. My story shapes how I see and understand God, Jesus, the gospel, and America. And what I have to say today, I say as someone who has been an American their whole life, but who has also been an outsider, a third culture kid their whole life. I speak as someone who loves this country and its ideals, but laments its idolatry and blindness. That our social and historical context is formative, that's true for us as individuals, but it's also true for us as a church. And as I'm reminded this weekend, for us as a church in this country. In Mark 1, Jesus' very first words are these. In the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. In the NIV, it says the time has come. Or in the message, time's up. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has arrived. Repent. Turn around. Turn away from the path you're on. Change your mind. Change your thoughts. Change your ways. And believe in the good news. Trust in it. Live as if it's true. What's the good news? What's the it? Well, what Jesus has just said, time's up. The kingdom of God has come near. Here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, which was the first gospel account written, that's the good news, that in the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God has broken into time and space in a new way. That's the good news, that in the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God has broken into our reality. That was the invitation then, and it is the invitation now. Repent and believe in the good news of God's kingdom. Trust it. Live it. Let it challenge you and change you. But what does that mean for us? Taking to heart the words of Dr. Cohen, I want to suggest that to repent and believe in the good news of God's kingdom means at least two things. One, that we know our place and time. And two, that we know ourselves. So the kingdom of God coming near means something for both of those things. But first, what is? What is the kingdom of God? That's, a, that's an important concept to know and understand because we talk about it a lot here at Christ City Church. In fact, it's part of our vision statement, to see the kingdom of God on display in D.C., in every life and every sphere of life. To see the kingdom of God on display in D.C., in every life and every sphere of life. But more importantly, the kingdom of God is an important concept to know and understand because Jesus talked about it a lot. And that's why we talk about it a lot. More than about sin, more than about money, more than anything else, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. In Jesus' day, there were a lot of kings and a lot of kingdoms. There was Caesar and Rome, there was Herod and Judea, and obviously Israel used to be a kingdom with famous kings like David and Solomon. But nowadays, there are only a few countries 
in the world that still have a king or queen. The United Kingdom is probably the one that we're most familiar with, but there's, there's Jordan, there's uh, the Netherlands. There are even few, con fewer countries where the monarch actually has any power. And so the concept of God being king can fall a little flat. Maybe you watched Prince Harry and Meghan's wedding. Maybe you've listened to the Queen's annual Christmas message before. But if we care about the royal family, it's usually more as a source of fascination or mild entertainment. For some, maybe a slight obsession. But it's more that than as anyone with any real power or authority or influence on our lives, right? Kingdom is a bit of an archaic term. It's a bit of an old-fashioned term. Well, what if we were to say instead the government of God? The government of God has arrived. Or the politics of God have arrived. Well, the danger of using a more archaic term is that we might lose the current ramifications in translation. But on the other hand, the danger of using a more contemporary term is that we bring all of our current baggage. So whatever your feelings about government, too big, too small, too much red tape, not enough getting done, too much gridlock, or politics, too partisan, too divisive, too complicated, you might transfer that to God. Or maybe depending on your global setting, you might have a different type of government. Democratic Republic, communist regime, military junta. You get the idea. That's really a risk with any language we use with God, isn't it? God is so beyond words, so others, so uncontainable by human comprehension and human expression that any metaphor we might come up with will fall short. I do like God's politics because it speaks of a new way of relating to one another. Politics being the way we figure out life together, the way that we organize ourselves and the way that we interact with each other. But whatever, whatever the terminology, use it as it's helpful and as it points to life. The idea that Jesus was trying to communicate in talking about the kingdom of God, though, was the rule and reign of God in every life and every sphere of life. Author and philosopher Dallas Willard described the kingdom of God as the range of his effective will. The range of his effective will, where what he wants done is done. The person of God himself and the action of his will are the organizing principles of his kingdom. But everything that obeys those principles, whether by nature or by choice, is within his kingdom. The kingdom of God is the expression of God. And so, just as we might express ourselves, we might raise up our hand, or we might turn our bodies away, or we might, we might use words, when God expresses himself, there is light, and there is healing, and there is restoration, there's goodness, there's justice. That's his kingdom. And anywhere God's will is done is within his kingdom. To use language we used in our Holy Spirit series a couple of months ago, there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that kingdom has come near. That reality is what Jesus brought near. That life and that way of life is what Jesus invites us into. So let's consider what that might mean for us now, knowing our place and time and knowing ourselves. Since we're just coming off of the celebration of the birth of our nation, let's start with knowing our place. The United States of America, this beautiful, complicated country where we both offer and espouse ideals of a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and so often fail to live up to those ideals. 
As was written almost 250 years ago, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. But these self-evident truths penned by white land-owning men didn't include women or slaves. And this declaration referred to the indigenous tribes as merciless Indian savages. In the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 2, for the purposes of taxation and representation, Native Americans were excluded and slaves only counted as three-fifths a person. Our nation has yet to have a full reckoning with our history. From slavery to Jim Crow and lynching, from the genocide of Native Americans to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which prohibited the immigration of Chinese laborers in the late 1800s, and Executive Order 9066, which interned Japanese Americans during World War II. Let's be honest, our, our nation has yet to have a full reckoning with our present reality. Militarism, racism, white supremacy, mass incarceration, family separation, kids in cages. It shouldn't need to be said, but it probably does. The United States of America is not the kingdom of God. No nation is. And America first is not a kingdom principle. What did Jesus say? Seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and God's right relationships over any other kingdom or nation or ideology, over the pursuit of wealth or power or celebrity or appetite or acclaim, seek first, strive first, pursue first a life and a community and a city and a world where what God wants done is done. To paraphrase what Marissa said last week when she preached from the book of Revelation, the vision of God's kingdom coming in all of its fullness in the future is the world we're living into and living out of right here and now. And thus it is even more critical for us as Christians living in America, as followers of Jesus living in America, as citizens of God's kingdom living in the American empire to reckon with our history and our present, our time. Because historically, Christians, and particularly white Christians in American history, have been complicit in building the American empire over the kingdom of God, often at the expense of the vulnerable, slaves, migrants, refugees, the indigenous tribes. Christians, often in defiance of our Lord's own words in Matthew 25, have often neglected the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the homeless, and the incarcerated. The great abolitionist and statesman and escaped slave, Frederick Douglass, who in the latter part of his life lived just a few miles away from here in Anacostia, offered this scathing critique in 1845. He said, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. And seven years later, as part of an address marking Independence Day, he said, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. 
your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. In those words... You know what I hear? I hear the echoes of God's words through the prophet Amos. I hate, I despise your festivals. He says this to the people of God. He says, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, which, which they might say, well, you, you told us to do that. I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of harps. Because what's missing? Let justice roll down like waters. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In our last series exploring the theology of place, we were trying to acknowledge, to recognize, and reckon with the fact that place matters. We live in America. Being a Christian in America, it looks different for me than when I was a Christian in London at the turn of the century, when I was a Christian in Hong Kong, when it was still a British colony. The broad principles, the ideals, and the core tenets remain the same, the call to Christ, the call to love, the call to justice. But because the context is different, so too are the demands. So too are the particular evils that need to be named and resisted and repented of. Reckoning with place and time means, for example, acknowledging the land we are on is stolen land. There were people here before America was named America. There's a, a website and an app, Native Land, that I was first introduced to by Potawatomi author Caitlin Curtis, where you can see the original tribes whose lands we claimed even as they were herded onto reservations or wiped out the victims of broken promises, the greed of economic expansion, and white supremacy. The land where we work and live and worship here in D.C. were the traditional lands of the Nakachtank tribe, also known as the Anacostans, now considered extinct as a tribe. And also the Piscataway or Piscatawa tribe, also known as the Patuxent or the Conway of whom only a few thousand remain. There is a sense of both humility and responsibility that comes with that acknowledgement. As with the acknowledgement that there are generations of black families who used to call our streets home and for all sorts of reasons no longer do or can. But what then? See, my purpose has not been to overwhelm nor to induce guilt. My hope has been that we might know our place and time well so that we might live with eyes wide open, so that we might better discern what the call of the kingdom is for us. See, if a person doesn't deal with, uh, for example, if a person doesn't deal with trauma from their childhood, 
but represses it or pretends like it never happened, it's not that that trauma ceases to exist. It actually spills out in that person's life and into the lives of others in toxic and dangerous and usually unconscious ways. So maybe a couple of framing questions might help. How might we, as kingdom citizens in D.C., change our ways so we don't uh, exacerbate racial and socioeconomic differences, but believe in the good news of the kingdom and therefore live to bridge those divides? Who would we have to listen to? What stories would we have to seek out? How might we, as kingdom citizens in D.C., change our ways so that we aren't just consumers here, not just taking what we can from here, whether it's a paycheck, an experience, or an education, but we believe in the good news of the kingdom and become co-collaborators with the Spirit and with others to seek the shalom of our city, particularly for the most vulnerable. As Marissa asked last week, what does it look like for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on our streets, on your street, in your home? What does it look like here and now in our place and time? What sort of community do we want to be here at Christ City? What sort of neighborhood or city do you want to live in and what are you doing about it? What imagination is the Spirit stirring in you? Something comes to mind, I want you to note it down now. Don't let it slip by. You can come back to it later today. Let's shift gears here. Has anyone here ever, when offering someone a correction or pointing out their error, noticed that their first reaction is often one of defensiveness, making excuses, rationalizing, or one of blame shifting and pointing fingers at others? Anyone? Someone coming to mind right now? Don't look at them if they're sitting right next to you. (laughs) Now, let's flip the lens. Have you ever when someone offers a correction or points out an error, leapt first to defending your actions, making excuses and rationalizing, or to shifting blame and pointing fingers at others. See, to be a kingdom citizen in the here and now, to be a follower of Jesus in our place and time, to repent and believe the good news of Jesus, of God's kingdom today, it doesn't just mean looking out there. It doesn't mean just being able to name what's wrong out there or having a kingdom vision for what's out there as important as those things are. It's being able to do the same for what's in here. It isn't enough to know our place in time. We have to know ourselves. It it isn't enough to reckon with the full reality of our nation's social context and history. We have to deal with the full reality of our own souls, our own scars, our own blessings, our own weaknesses and strengths, our own baggage, our own thoughts and attitudes. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a 20th century Russian novelist, dissident labor camp survivor who wrote this. He said, if only, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. What the kingdom of God looks like for our world is the rule and reign of Jesus in every life and every sphere of life. 
What the kingdom of God looks like for each of us is the rule and reign of Jesus in every sphere of your life. Body, mind, spirit, soul, social life, sex life, finances, friendships, and family. Another way of describing it is that we are all seeking to live as Jesus would if he were in our place. We're seeking to live as Jesus would if, as, if he were in our place. After all, Jesus was not just God. He was the embodiment and example of God's will and therefore God's kingdom on earth. If we seek God's kingdom, we will seek to be like the king. Jesus was all of God's love and justice and holiness and mercy in flesh Colossians 1 tells us Jesus was the perfect example for what it means to be a human being, to live as one made in the image of God, as it says in Genesis 1, one who reflects God's character, God's goodness. And that's why in Mark 1, just a few verses after Jesus tells his listeners to repent and believe in the good news of God's kingdom, he invites a few fishermen to follow me. Follow me. When I was in California last month, my 14-year-old nephew Matthew and I were sitting at the dinner table, and he asked me, he said, Uncle Jess, can I follow you? And I knew he meant on Instagram. <laughs> but I said, around the house? Because I'm a dad now, and I get to make those jokes. <laughs> but to be a Christian is to follow Jesus, not in the sense of following someone on social media, but in the sense of becoming like them, learning how to live like them, learning how to live from them. That's what it means to be a disciple. We become students and learners of Jesus. That's why Paul wrote to the Galatians that his prayer was for Christ to be formed in you. Why he exhorted the Corinthian Christians to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because the thing is, we're, we're all students and learners of something. We're always becoming. We're always being formed and shaped, sometimes toward good ends and sometimes toward less good ends. Sometimes by good ideas and beneficent forces and sometimes by, by depraved ideas and sinister forces. The shows we watch, the books we read, the conversations we have, the things we indulge in, the relationships we engage in, all of those impact our becoming. The question is, are we becoming more like Jesus which is to be more like God, which is, according to Genesis 1, more in line with how we were created, or less? Are we becoming more compassionate, more kind, more loving, more courageous in the face of injustice, more protective of the vulnerable, or less? Are we becoming people of more integrity, or less? People with more character and moral fiber, or less? People with more faith, or less. Here's the thing. It isn't just about you. Your becoming affects others' becoming, too. My favorite actor is Denzel Washington. Any other Denzel fans here? A few? Okay, that's good. So a couple of weeks ago, he was honored by the American Film Institute with a very well-deserved Lifetime Achievement Award. And so a bunch of famous actors and actresses and directors went on stage to sing his praises. Uh, Julia Roberts, Spike Lee, Morgan Freeman, Jodie Foster, Michael B. Jordan, Issa Rae, Antoine Fuqua, Jamie Foxx, Cicely Tyson. 
But the one that stuck with me, the one that got Denzel up on his feet, was Chadwick Boseman's speech. Now, in case you need a reminder, Chadwick Boseman has played a number of historical figures on screen. The joke is that he's always going to play the first black man to do this. Jackie Robinson, James Brown, Thurgood Marshall, oh, and some superhero named Black Panther. Incidentally, uh, Chadwick Boseman attended college just across town at Howard University. But I want you to check out his speech here. Ladies and gentlemen, Chadwick Boseman. I know personally that your generosity extends past what you have given on the stage and screen. Many of you already know the story that Mr. Washington, when asked by Felicia Rashad to join her in assisting nine theater students from Howard University who had been accepted to a summer acting program at the British Academy of Dramatic Acting in Oxford, he gracefully and privately agreed to contribute. As fate would have it, I was one of the students that he paid for. Imagine receiving a letter that your tuition for that summer was paid for and that your benefactor was none other than the dopest actor on the planet. <laughs> I have no doubt that there are similar stories at boys and girls clubs and theaters and churches across the country where I know you have also inspired and motivated others. An offering from a sage and a king is more than silver and gold. It is a seed of hope a bud of faith. There is no Black Panther without Denzel Washington. And, 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 and not just because of me, but my whole cast, that generation, stands on your shoulders. The daily battles won, the thousand territories gained, the many sacrifices you made for the culture on film sets through your career, the things you refused to compromise along the way, laid the blueprints for us to follow. And so now, let he who has watered be watered. Let he who has given be given too. It is an honor to now know you, to learn from you, and join in this work with you May God bless you exceedingly and abundantly more in what's in store than he ever has before. God bless you. I love everything about his tribute. His poetic use of words, the, the cool story of how Denzel supported a young actor in college and, and look who he became the acknowledgement of the sacrifices of one who went before, the honoring and blessing of an elder. But what I really love is Chadwick Boseman's recognition that not only do he and all the other black actors of his generation stand on the shoulders of Denzel, not only do they get to benefit from his integrity and his pioneering, but actually they get to join him in the work. That's what becoming is about. That's what faith is about. 
That's what spiritual formation is about. Not only do we get to benefit from the sacrifice of Jesus, not only do we get to learn from and follow his example, not only do we get to to learn from the master, no, we also get to join him in the work that he is doing. We may not be recognized from the stage like Denzel Washington. But it remains true that who we are becoming will impact who others become. Here's the sequel to the picture I shared at the beginning of my parents at their home in Pasadena 50 years, of what was their home 50 years ago. This is them with me and my brother Gabe, and both of us also Fuller grads. And both of us, along with our eldest brother Clem, pastors in different parts of the world. My parents becoming, their obedience to the Spirit's guidance, their participation in the work of the kingdom, their deference to the grace of God, and they would always say, it was no work of our own, but it was all the grace of God. That has had very real effects on the heritage I get to pass on to my son. But it isn't just parents and children whose becoming is intertwined, is it? It's friends, significant others, it's community, it's church, it's strangers, it's anyone who has the fortune or misfortune to cross your path at any point in your life. Who we are becoming matters because every action, every interaction, every conversation tells a story of sin or of redemption, of hope or of despair, of the kingdom of God or of some other kingdom. We are always becoming. And this, to me, is the essence of life in the Spirit. It's joining with the Spirit in the transformation of our souls into the likeness of Christ. It's learning more and more how to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love neighbor as ourself, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, to embody the outrageously inclusive welcome of the kingdom, to take on the character of Christ to form communities, churches that do the same, that look like Jesus. And in so doing, committing ourselves to the transformation of our world. This is what it looks like when the kingdom comes among us. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Those words were spoken in a remote region of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago by a man who embodied humble love and fierce compassion and courageous justice every moment of his life and every moment of his death on the cross and because of the resurrection every moment for all of time. Jesus' invitation to us all and to each of us is to repent and believe the good news of God's kingdom, a new way of life and a new way of living that he makes available to us right here and right now a quiet, often unseen, peaceable revolution that will upend the very way we see and inhabit this world. Or maybe turn us right way up for the very first time. The invitation before us is nothing less than the fullness of Christ formed in us, the fullness of life in God's kingdom and the fullness of that kingdom on earth. It isn't an either-or proposition. It's all of the above. For some here, the invitation is personal. 
The Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart a discontent with the way things are in your life or with some aspect of your life. And, and, and the Spirit is inviting you to discern and to dream what life could look like when you live in line with God's kingdom and God's will and God's character, and God's love. For others, the invitation is to lift your eyes from yourself and to realize that your becoming is tied up in the becoming of others and that indeed we are all inextricably linked and that the kingdom challenge to you is to throw your lot in with those in need, to recognize that the God of justice will no longer let you sit still or sit silent. And maybe for someone here, you've never really given thought to who you're becoming or what your life is about. But this man Jesus and this Kingdom of His, it's weird language, but this kingdom of His seemed like a good place to start. Life with Christ and His kingdom is available right now. All you have to say is yes to the call of the kingdom. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you draw near to us? Would you speak the words that we need to hear? Would you reveal what we need to know and see and understand? Might we be changed, Lord? May we give all of ourselves and all of our efforts, all of our becoming into your hands, Lord. Would your Holy Spirit be forming us and transforming us? God, particularly in those areas of our lives that, that feel intractable, that feel unchangeable, or the areas of our world or our city that, that we feel helpless to do anything, God, would you, would you move us, would you inspire us, would you connect us with folks that will walk with us on this journey? We pray these things surrounded by and in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.